and welcome to the Uncensored Christian Podcast. <laughs> nah, I'm just playing. Y'all know that's not how I talk. What is popping, everybody? I hope y'all are ready to continue to learn. We're Look, we're getting through Romans, all right? And if y'all know me, and if you know how we go through these scripture studies and these, these passages, you may have come to the realization that sometimes I spend like an entire episode on like two or three verses out of the whole passage. And I bet for some of y'all, you're like, come on, Dante, just get through it, buddy. <laughs> but I hope that for most of you, you appreciate the fact that we we break down a lot of things that otherwise would just get skipped over. Um, and these things are very important. And understanding these things is really crucial to understanding what the Bible is telling us. And so we're doing something similar today. Uh, but hey, it's not two or three verses that we're getting through today. We're, we're getting through one. <laughs> we're only getting through one verse today. But, but look, we're getting into the nitty gritty of Paul's letter to the Roman church. We really are. Because for the majority of this letter, chapters 1 through 11, what Paul is doing is he is building for us a foundation of sound theology, apologetics, answering potential questions or rebuttals to his points. He used the Old Testament to support his teachings of Jesus, and he set in stone the place of the Jews and the Gentiles in the body of Christ. He was fixing a lot of problems in the Roman church. He was setting up new guidelines and foundations and um, just standards for how we view God, our relationship with him, how we view salvation, how we view ourselves as human beings, uh, as status of sinners in need of a savior. Paul really builds this theology to the Roman church, which we are so blessed to be able to peek in on this little mail, his letter that he sent. Um, And this helped us build theology for ourselves as well. But now that we have this foundation, Paul moves on to application. He built the foundation for his his readers, and now he's moving on to application. And so we have to ask the question is, how does all of this that Paul built in the first 11 chapters, how does it actually play out in our lives? What does that look like in action? And so that's what Paul's going to start getting into on these last, what is it, four chapters of his letter to the Roman people. And I'm going to read today verses 1 through 5 because they they really do go together, but um, unfortunately we're only getting through verse 1 today. But we're going to read verses 1 through 5. If you got your own Bibles with you, pop it open. I'm reading from the ESV, and let's get it popping. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, through though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. All right. Oh, that was a good little five verses from Paul. I can't wait to break that down next week because this week 
We're getting through verse 1. I'm going to read it again. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay. The, reading this, does this bring any questions to y'all's mind? Because I know it brings a few questions to my mind. One being, so we're supposed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? <laughs> like you just going to say that and just skirt past it, Paul. Is that what you're saying? So, so what on earth does it mean to present our bodies as a sacrifice? How do we do that? And the next question I have is, what is the purpose of this sacrifice? If he's going to call us to do it, there's got to be a reason behind it. I don't think Paul's just pulling this out of thin air. And I think to understand what Paul is talking about in regards to sacrifice, we really need to get a, a grounding of just the basic meaning of sacrifice throughout the Hebrew Bible. We need to understand what Paul is just automatically pulling from his knowledge of the Hebrew Bible. We need to understand what Paul is talking about. So let's go ahead and rewind back all the way back to Genesis 3. We start from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned, they ate from the tree that God told them not to. And from that point on, they were expelled from the garden. They were expelled from the place where heaven and earth met, expelled from the place where God dwelt amongst human beings and they walked with each other. And this is significant because what, what Eden was, what the garden was, is it symbolized and foreshadowed the temple that would later be built starting in Exodus and, and so on. And let me break this down because th this is really crucial for us understanding the importance of a sacrifice and, and why you need it. So if you look at the breakdown of the Garden of Eden, if you flip through Genesis 2, you'll, you'll see this breakdown. You'll see that at the, the, the most macro level, if you just zoomed out on the camera, you had earth or in Hebrew it would be the dry land. And then within the earth, um, and just for a, a forewarning, earth most likely is not talking about the globe. They had no conception of the globe. Earth would have been just the land, the dry land. So within this plot of dry land, however large, there was Eden in the east. If you read through Genesis 2, you'll see all this. So you have the earth, the dry land, Eden in the east, which is within the earth. And then you go even smaller, and God places a garden within Eden. And then within the garden, there was two trees in the middle, the tree of life and the tree of knowing good and evil. And within the middle, we're told throughout the narrative that this is where God walked with Adam. This is where the divine and human meet. This is the most sacred space. So this here is symbolizing what would later be called in the temple, the holy of holies. And you can also cross-reference um, just for another point, pointing to the fact that Eden is symbolizing or foreshadowing the temple, is if you look at what happened when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, what did he place to guard the entrance? He placed cherubim. And you can read this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. But also, in the temple, God had it set up where something else was symbolically protecting or cutting off the Holy of Holies. And that was cherubim. 
If you read Exodus 26, verses 31 through 33, you see that God had the temple be set up where there is a veil guarding the Holy of Holies, basically cutting it off from just anyone entering. And on the veil, there was um, cherubim, images of cherubim. So this is a direct callback to Eden and how God guarded the holiest place within the garden with cherubim, and he's doing the same in the temple. So all of this to say is that Eden is foreshadowing the temple, and the temple symbolizes Eden. So we know from the narrative in Genesis that what came after humanity's separation was that it led to the Tower of Babel, which was not a good deal. It then led to Israel being uh, slaves in Egypt. These are both very, very bad situations in the narrative. But God does not want to see Israel fall into this same situation again. He doesn't want to see them basically replay the sins of Adam and Eve and the consequences that left their uh, descendants. And God knows far too well that Israel can be corrupt just like every other nation, every other human being. So this is why God made a promise to Abraham that he would restore divine blessing to the nations through Israel. He says this in Genesis 12. God says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So by his own word, God has obligated himself not to destroy Israel when they sin against him. So how does God achieve this? This is where we get to sacrifice. God achieves this goal through sacrifice. I got this little excerpt from Bible Project. They did an article on animal sacrifice and what it means to be a living sacrifice. And I wanted to like read it and then kind of you know, summarize it in my own words, but they just write it out so good that I'm just going to read you an excerpt from it. They say this regarding um, Israel's sin and God's obligation to not destroy them. So now he's left with another option. He's left with um, a situation that he has to try and figure out. And so they say this, quote, the Israelites are sinful and corrupt humans like all of us who are going to keep sinning. They're in desperate need of God to purify and cleanse them. The Israelites needed a system of some kind that could do the following. One, turn them away from sin. Two, provide just recompense for the hard cost of their debt. Three, provide a way to cleanse and purify the community, specifically the temple, from the infectious nature of sin. And four, ensure God maintains his presence with his people. They continue on. They say animal sacrifice was a common practice within the context of the ancient Near East, but its meaning within the biblical story is different from the volatile, angry gods of Israel's neighbors. For the Israelites, cutting an animal's throat and watching its blood, that is, its life, drain from its body, was a visceral symbol of the devastating results of their sin and selfishness. However, the symbol did even more. This animal's death was not just a reminder of sin's tragic consequences. Its life was also offered as a symbolic substitute. If sin vandalizes God's world with death and pain, God has every right to make people face the just consequences. Thankfully, God loves his creation and does not want to kill them. So this animal's life is symbolically offered as a ransom payment that would cover them. These atoning sacrifices were the means in which God would deal with the Israelites' sin and provide a reliable system the Israelites could use to maintain their right relationship with God when they did sin. This substitute, so to speak, 
is not offered by humans hoping to appease a volatile and angry deity. It's precisely the opposite. In Leviticus, this substitute is provided by God himself. Look at Leviticus 17 verse 11. God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And this symbolism of animal sacrifice in the Bible is a concrete expression of God's justice and grace at the same time. It reminded the Israelites of the serious nature of sin, its consequences for the individuals involved in the community at large. Ultimately, these sacrifices showed the Israelites how much God wanted to stay in his covenant relationship with them. That's some good stuff. I hope that gives you a better understanding of the purpose and the meaning of sacrifice throughout the Hebrew Bible. One thing I want to point out that's interesting is the importance as to why God offered sacrifice as a way to symbolically atone for the sins of Israel is because if we if we look back at the fourth um, point that they gave that that God needed to do something in order to ensure that he maintains his presence with his people. This is far too important for us to skip over. The sacrifice made it so that Israel was justified in God's eyes so that he would no longer have to leave their presence. He he is intentionally offering the ability to sacrifice so that Israel does not have to fully replay the entire situation that happened in the garden. So they do not have to be fully kicked out from God's presence. God offers them the ability to sacrifice so that their sins can be atoned for, so that God can remain in their presence in the temple in the Holy of Holies. That's really important to note. But I have this question. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Taking all of this into consideration, what does it mean for us to be a living sacrifice? Well, remember the first reason that they noted for animal sacrifice. It was to remind Israel how terrible and deadly their sin was. Watching the life of an animal being taken, blood dripping from its neck, it's suffering in a sense. And it's all because of your transgression, because you decided to sin. Seeing that would have been a deterrent to sin again. It really would. The same principle is at play when we look to Jesus and replay, whether we're reading the Gospels or replaying our mind, what the sacrifice of Jesus would have looked like. One of, one of the most moving movies um, I, I have ever watched was The Passion of the Christ. And... I'm not going to speak to you know how it particularly kept every single word of the Bible to a T. We know how movies are and, and how they relate to their books. But what stuck out to me, what I'll never forget, and I broke down when I saw it, was actually visualizing something close to what Jesus went through when he was tortured, whipped, beaten, spit on, pushed over, mocked, hung on the cross, and dying. If you've never seen that movie before, I I highly recommend that you see it because when I got done seeing that movie, it was the first time 
that I was able to visualize what Jesus actually went through in order to make sure that I was justified. It was the first time I was actually able to visualize what the text in the Gospels talked about with Jesus being beat. Because look, we're so desensitized to violence and death in our culture. When it comes to the movies that we see and the TV shows that we watch, we've seen people die in a million different ways. If you've watched TV shows or movies growing up, you have probably seen people burned, shot, killed, heads chopped off, all of these things. And it's just so normal to us now. It's in all of our action movies and half the time we cheer it. So it was really difficult for me as I'm reading through the Gospels for one of the first times in my life, hearing about Jesus getting whipped and hung on the cross, I just really couldn't visualize it and it didn't have an effect on me like it should have and when i saw on the screen a close representation to what jesus went through seeing him get whipped in the tools that they used to whip him literally peeling his flesh off of his back seeing his tissues and his muscles because they were just beating him raw Seeing him already covered in blood and they're yelling at him to stand back up, not so they can go get him help, but so they can keep beating him some more. Watching the nails go through his hands, watching him dangle, trying to breathe and seeing him in pain as he's trying to lift his body up, hanging on a cross so he can get some air. Actually seeing that, I was able to visualize what the sacrifice that Jesus made really looked like. And it's really hard to sin in ignorance after seeing something like that. It never leaves your mind. And this is, this is a tiny bit of what Israel would have felt when they sacrificed an animal, seeing the animal be punished in a sense for something that you did, seeing it die, seeing it bleed. So when it comes to being a living sacrifice, we're to sacrifice our own desires to live in accordance with God's will because we are aware of what Jesus went through. We're aware not only of the implications spiritually and eternally with the sacrifice, but we're aware of what Jesus went through physically. The unbelievable torture that Jesus went through. We are asked, when, it, when we're called to be a living sacrifice, we're asked to continually replay that in our minds to never forget what Jesus actually did. And because of that, we recognize that we are dead to sin. Because of his sacrifice. And therefore, we no longer have to live in sin or for sin, but live for Jesus. That's how we become a living sacrifice. It's exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 6 in the very first verse. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How, if you've already been dead to sin, then you're expected to live out of sin. Be a living sacrifice for Christ. 
Now the second reason. Remember the second reason uh, that they gave for animal sacrifice. It was so that, as they say, the sacrifice could be symbolically offered as a ransom payment. And this was done so that Israel could maintain their relationship with God. Now for believers in Jesus, we didn't get a symbolic ransom sacrifice. We got a real sacrifice. And it was from God himself in the flesh. And that truly covered our sins for life. It wasn't symbolic. It was actual payment of the debt. And this too was done so that all mankind can have relationship with God. It really does parallel. The sacrifice that Jesus made and the reasons for it parallel this animal sacrifice in the Old Testament and the reasons for that in many different, in many different cases. So if our sin has already been paid, then we should live like that's the case, being a living sacrifice. You know what's interesting? When, when I'm thinking about being a living sacrifice, one could easily jump to the conclusion that the purpose of this sacrifice is to please God. It is to make God happy with us as if God is angry and, you know, if we just live right and, you know, say all the right things and do all the right things and that'll make God happy. But I don't think that's the case. Look, because all biblical sacrifice is ultimately offered for the good of humanity, not for the good of God. God does not need anything from us. Let me prove it to you. Look at the very first implied sacrifice in the Bible. Back to Genesis 3, verse 21. This is right after Adam and Eve sinned. And God was like, hey, yo, what y'all doing? Where, where you at, Adam? Oh, you hiding? Yeah, I'm hiding God. Oh, snap, why are you hiding? <laughs> and once God finds out, uh, he does this in verse 21. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So when it says garments of skin... Well, what, what, what garments did God make that from? He didn't kill another human being and give them their skin. He sacrificed an animal and provided for humanity with that sacrifice. This sacrifice was not made so that God didn't have to see them butt naked because he obviously saw that beforehand and had no problem. <laughs> this sacrifice was made to give provision to God's beloved creation. And this should say something about God's love for humanity. That even after Adam and Eve sinned, and then Adam lied straight to God's face, God still provided. He still gave them provision. So I would have to say, no. Being a living sacrifice isn't to please God. That's not the purpose. The purpose of being a living sacrifice is God's direction that leads to the purpose. God, God wants us to be a living sacrifice because it is what is best for us. When it comes to sacrificing our bodies as living sacrifices, God wants us to uphold the body that he created us in. And he wants us to actually use it, to actually be productive with it, to further the kingdom with our bodies. And it's not, it's not for God. It's not so God can be happy and, and pleased. It's so that we can be in a better right standing with God, but also the things that God calls us to do, they bring life. 
they bring life. Everything that God says is good brings life. You can see this in the Genesis narrative. If you go back to Genesis 1 and you look at the days of creation, what does God say? God creates and he says, it is good. God creates and says, it is good. There's actually one day that God doesn't say anything about it being good or bad. And some argue that that's the one day that really doesn't have much to do with um, humanity being able to thrive and survive in God's creation. And I believe that's on the day where, um, I believe it's on the third day where God just creates, he separates the lights in the skies and, and puts all that in there. But all the other days, when God says it's good, these are things that directly impact humanity's ability to survive and thrive in God's creation. And the one time that God says something is not good is when he sees that man is alone in Genesis 2. And what we're supposed to gather from this is that God is the one who decides what is good. God's nature is good, so so it's implied from that that God is the one who decides what is good and what is not good. And what do we see? The first time when somebody other than God decides that something is good, it's Eve. And she eats from the tree because it was good in her eyes. And look what that caused. So what we're supposed to gather from this is that God loves to see humanity thrive and survive and live the best life that they can. And in his eyes, that is good. But God is the one who decides what is good. And so if God has laid out his word and he has laid out instruction and he has laid out a way of life that we are supposed to follow, then that means that being a living sacrifice implies that we follow that instruction. And it's not so that God can gain something from us. It's so that we can gain something from God, and that is his knowledge of what is best. Now, I want to point out something. Back to verse 1. I want to read it again because Paul says, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Hmm. The body. Why the body? It seems that Paul is expecting us to not only sacrifice our spirits and our minds and things like that, but also our entire being our entire body. I think this is important to note, and this is something I overlooked when I was originally reading this, is because I think we can get so caught up, especially nowadays, in the spiritual side of Christianity, in the knowledgeable side of Christianity, in the relational, like, I feel this, and I just felt God in that. We can get so caught up in the spiritual side of it that sometimes we ignore the physical side. And what do I mean by that? Well, for many of us, we have no problem with praying or reading our Bibles occasionally or maybe even doing a study. Uh, We definitely have no problem with sharing our beliefs. We'll tell people all day long what we believe, why we believe it, what we've experienced, how it made us feel. But if Christianity was boiled down to just those things, it would look more like a political group and less like a body of believers ready to actively go out and bring heaven on earth and announce the gospel to the nations. Hmm. 
I say body of believers intentionally because it appears that Paul is calling on the church as a whole to be a living sacrifice. Often we would read this as an individual command. We would read it and say, oh, God wants me to sacrifice my body. God wants me, my body, to be a sacrifice, and he wants everyone else's body to be a little individual sacrifice. And it it still would apply that way, I would say, but that's not what Paul's saying. And when we understand what Paul is actually saying, it drastically changes how we are to understand um, what it means to be a living sacrifice and have our bodies as a sacrifice. We have to note this to understand what Paul's saying, that biblical Greek could differentiate between a singular you, like the word you, and plural you. See, our English translations aren't good at translating that, so it just reads as you in English when it really should be y'all. Now, if y'all are from the South, in the United States of America, you know what y'all means. You know how to use it in a sentence. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. You hear me? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Y'all is just the plural for you. It means you all. So it's not just talking about one person. It's talking about an entire group of people. Y'all. And so when Paul says you in the Greek, it's meaning plural. It's meaning y'all in this instance. Here's one verse, um, another letter from Paul that can help prove my point to you. Um, It's 1 Corinthians 3.16. If you have the Bible app or even if you have your Bible handy, look up 1 Corinthians 3.16. Some of your translations, um, the ESV, NLT, I believe has it, NASB, um, some of these will give you a footnote right after a few words, and it'll explain that when Paul says the word you, He's talking about it in the plural. And I'll read the verse. It says this. It says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So look at that footnote, and you'll see that you there is plural. Should be translated y'all. And the reason why I point this out is because typically we would read this verse, and I did this for years up until a few months ago when I learned this, but we would see this verse as meaning that individually, We are all just little temples, right? Like every single individual person's body is a temple. And this verse has been used time and time again to talk about not getting tattoos on your body and to be in shape and doing all of this stuff because, hey, our body's a temple and you wouldn't want to defile the temple, would you? And what's funny is, is that I don't know if we misread this just because the translation, because you could still infer that Paul, when he says you, that he's talking to the entire group of the Corinthian church. So I don't know if we misread it because of that or if it's just our culture, because we live in an individualistic culture. And so when we see the word you in the Bible, we automatically assume that Paul only had one person in mind instead of an entire group of people. But we got to remember that Paul lived in a collectivist society. The individual was not the utmost important. The group was. The success of the group, the honor of the group, that was the most important. And so keeping that in mind, it does seem more apparent that, hey, Paul's talking about the entire group in Corinth when he's saying that they are God's temple. So this would completely change how we understand this. If Paul's really saying, do y'all not know 
that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? So Paul is saying that all of them together are a singular temple, one temple, so that the church collectively is God's temple. One thing I would challenge you to do is as you're reading throughout the New Testament, especially the letters that Paul writes, if you see the word you, just read back through the passage and think, what if Paul is talking about y'all? What if he means you in a collective sense and not individually? And see how that changes how you read scripture. It, it's really interesting. So back to what Paul's saying. So when Paul says at the beginning of the chapter that we're reading, chapter 12, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It should be read as to present y'all's body as a singular sacrifice. So to present all of your bodies as one sacrifice, as one living sacrifice. Paul's concern is with the whole body of Christ, not just the individual. It's not enough in Paul's eyes for just a portion of the body of Christ to be active. He expects the entire body of Christ collectively to be a living sacrifice for God. He expects for all of them to use their bodies, their gifts, their abilities to be one united sacrifice for God. Well, how does that look? How does that play out? Maybe I can do this. Let me give you an example of how it should not look. And I want to look at the structure of some modern churches. They're not all like this. I'm not trying to condemn churches. I think church is great, but I have seen quite a few churches, at least in my area, that this is their their model. And it's kind of set up this way intentionally, which is unfortunate, but also the the congregation, the people that go there, they kind of go along with it. And I'd like to challenge how we go about that. So for instance, this is how it should not look. You have a large congregation, a large church, and maybe large for you is 60, 100 people. Maybe it's thousands. But either way, this congregation attends a service, and they do it in order to get their own filling of God's Word. They go for their own experience, their own walk with God. It's about them. It's important that they get filled. They will give tithe. They'll give the 10%, often expecting that they'll be blessed because of it. When Just a little footnote here. Uh, tithing, 10% every single week to the church isn't actually biblically commanded, even though pastors will say it is. That'll be a whole other episode for another time. But they'll go ahead and tithe, and they'll expect to get blessed because they've been told that, hey, if you give your 10%, God is going to just explode your bank account, and you're never going to have to worry for anything again. They'll go, and they'll be expecting for just a small group within the church to use those funds to go out and help the community. They feel great about the fact that they that they tithe, and after this, we feel as though our Christian duty is complete. Now, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is this. In this scenario, which... I know for me is far too common in churches in my area, and it may be the same for you. In this scenario, only a small group within the large congregation is offering their body as a living sacrifice. 
while the majority of the congregation just give their money, think that they're going to be set on the back end of it, they feel like they have done what they needed to do, and then the actual staff of the church go out and handle their business with the funds. Now, I think it's fairly easy to conclude that this type of structure of the church would not have flown with Paul. Paul would have expected the entire Roman church to participate in some way, shape, or form. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. Paul says this, For the body, talking about the the body of Christ, the, the church, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not the eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This distinction is crucial to understanding and applying Paul's prescription. We shouldn't just abandon the collective, the entire church, in order to focus on our individual selves. Because Paul sees the church as a group of believers who are all crucially important to the gospel. Not just your money, not just your tithe, not just your presence, not just the fact that you clap when the preacher says something good, but he sees each one of your abilities as crucially important to the entire body. Each needing the other in order to accomplish God's will, which is that the gospel be spread to the ends of the earth. And when we view God's will as revolving around ourselves instead of the whole world, we tend to dismiss our obligation to moving the gospel forward instead of keeping it for our own betterment. So what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? What does it mean to sacrifice our bodies? It means that each and every one of us should not be complacent when it comes to sharing the gospel and following God's will. Every single one of us, it is important that we all do this because Paul expects all of us together, all of y'all, to come together and offer your bodies as one sacrifice to God. And as Paul says, that is your spiritual worship.